Welcome to episode number 44 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkid. In this episode of The Thermal, competing at the 15-meter World Gliding Contest in Narromine, Australia, we follow up with Dutch competition pilot Jeroen Verkal to find out what it was like. What do you do when you turn 80? Well, you buy a high-performance motor glider and go on an epic cross-country flight to Australia's famous morning glory wave system. And you get your glider pilot's license in the process. John Riedel tells us all about it. Imagine a cockpit with almost unlimited visibility and you have the ultra-vision glider concept. I speak to the aeronautical engineer behind this innovative design. That's all in episode number 44 of The Thermal. Eleven contest days, a few thousand kilometers, and over 30 hours of physically demanding and mentally challenging contest flying. That pretty well sums up the 15-meter World Gliding Contest in Narromine, Australia, which wrapped up in early December. Dutch 15-meter pilot Jeroen Verkal placed fourth in the 15-meter class flying a JS-3. Jeroen is now back in the Netherlands. I've reached him at home in Heemstaden. Hello, Jeroen. Congratulations on doing such a good job at the contest. Hi, Harry. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. Good evening. Or good morning. Yeah, well, yeah, good morning for me, evening for you. Uh, that's nice about doing this podcast all over the world. I get to talk to people in different time zones. So, Yeah, well, actually, for me, it feels, still feels uh, morning. There's a pretty hard jet lag. <laughs> I can imagine. that's That takes a bit to get over. And even though you, you have jet lag all the time, I'm sure, but this is a particularly good one going from Australia to Holland. Yeah, it's a long distance. So, listen, you just missed the podium. On the last day, you moved up two spots. You fought to the bitter end. Uh, I think you did an excellent job. What... What's your reaction? How do you feel? Uh, it's a bit, a bit mixed emotions because uh, fourth, of course, is not bad. Uh, last year in uh, Hungary in the Worlds, I uh, also became fourth, which I was uh, very happy with. But uh, this time uh, it's a mixed feeling, so happy, but also uh, uh, the feeling that I could have done a little bit better to be at least at the podium. But yeah. I didn't and the others did, so fair enough. Yeah, but but boy, oh boy, that's you know fourth place in in a contest like that is pretty is excellent. You know, no matter how you yeah. slice and dice it, so uh, uh, nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, so. Yeah. so listen, talk talk to me about your strategy and how you flew. And I I understand you flew a lot with your your teammate Eric Borgman. Yeah. Yes, it was a bit uh, spontaneous because uh, before we went to the concert, we said, uh, well, we help each other, of course, but uh, we can do uh, whatever we want. And uh, during the, the training week, we at least once want to try it just in case. Mm -hmm. And it went pretty well. And um, so we were still on the opinion to uh, go together um, at the first uh, contest day. And uh, after that, uh, we said, you know, it's going to be some dry days, no, uh, no cumulus, and uh, we might be better off uh, flying together. And so we did. And uh, the first day, two days went pretty well. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we kept on doing it. And what, what's Eric flying or was he flying? Uh, also JS3. Okay, so you're, yeah. you're perfectly matched and that's, that's yeah. ideal. Yeah. Yeah, what, what is not ideal is, of course, that uh, we never trained it uh, to fly together. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, yeah, we have both quite some experience with uh, flying with other teammates, so it went uh, pretty well, pretty fast. 
So you avoided the gaggle? Well, we tried to, <laughs> which was a hard thing. But it, you, as you can see in the results, uh, everything is very close together, especially in the 50 meter class. So there was, uh, especially on the blue days, uh, a lot of gaggling, but we tried to avoid it. Um, well, yeah, the strategy is simple. Huh? Start late, finish, finish first. <laughs> you know, I was amazed at looking at some of those times where on, on a particular day, I forget which one, but the, the, mm -hmm you know, 30 seconds apart, over 500 kilometers, you know, yeah. it's amazing how tight those margins are and how competitive all you pilots are. Yeah, it's, uh, for example, between number four and number nine are like 33 points. It's, I don't know, maybe uh, it's not even two minutes. Yeah. And then you're talking about the whole competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which shows you about the, the you know the quality of, of pilots you've got flying in this competition. Yep, indeed, indeed. So, so, from your point of view, what was the biggest challenge for you down there? Uh, well, as as I said in the last interview, uh, the heat mm -hmm. uh, we coped with it pretty well. Uh, of course, uh, on the, the the very good days with the cumulus and the twelve thousand feet uh, uh, base, it was easy. To sure. <laughs> actually, getting cold nice up and high. there. Yeah. Yeah, nice and high, but there were some low and slow days as well. And uh, yeah, just hydrate and uh, keep cool. Um, Did you have so. any cooling vests or anything like that? N no, we didn't. But I must say uh, next year is uh, Uvalde is coming up. Yep. And uh, I think it will be a good idea to uh, to use those uh, in Uvalde because that's even hotter than uh, Naramine was. Okay. Well, we'll ask about that later, um, but <laughs> sure. uh, the contest itself, this contest, talk to me about mm -hmm. how your brain worked, uh, you know, as a competition pilot. Did, did your mental at attitude play a, a role in some of those days that you won or like the, I forget which day, the first or second day you, you came in first, I think. Yeah, the first the first two days and uh, the, I believe it was the ninth day that Eric uh, came in uh, first. Um well, in the beginning, it's easy. Just you just go and fly, and uh, that mo most of the time that uh, works the best. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, on the third day, we got a little bit overconfident. Uh, tried to manage ourselves, which didn't work. That cost us a lot of points, and at the end, and most probably the uh, the, the championship. Um, so what happened? You mean you got you caught just, out? You went too far? You missed a thermal? Uh, well, actually, it was on Blue Day. It was an uh, AAT task, and we thought, you know, we can manage by ourselves. Um, so we started first, and uh, the gaggle started ten minutes later, and uh, we got caught up by the gaggle on the on the first turning point. And what we should have done at that moment is just, you know, take the loss, stay with the gaggle, and find another opportunity uh, to to get away from it. But uh, we did it right away, and uh, so we cut the corner, so to say, mm -hmm. and then the gaggle catched us up again. So, yeah, we lost a lot, lots of time there. So um, are, are, are you an aggressive pilot when you're in the air? Uh, no. I wouldn't say so. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but, you know, sometimes... Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, I used to be, uh, but, you know, it, it, the, the, it's... Um, it's a better tactic to be, um, yeah, how should I say it? more of a mental game. Yeah, no, take calculated risks, so mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. If you just go for the win every day, uh, that 
most probably will go wrong at least one day and then you lose all your points right so so these big contests there's always you know there's risk in gliding there's always risk but from what i've read and understand there's always a little bit more risk in in a big competition like this how, how was that in, in this uh, contest uh, it was actually okay. It was in, a, for example, in a, uh, Benalla, Australia. Last time it was uh, it was horrible because we had lots of blue days. The problem mostly is in the blue days with gaggling, and at one point um, all the uh, different classes came together. So then you have club class, standard class, and 50 meter class in one big gaggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a bit too much, especially at the end of the day when the turmoils get weak and a little bit. Um, yeah, unstable, and then you see everybody turning left and right and up and down, and uh, so there was, uh, yeah. Uh, the flarm's going off, and your neck's getting sore, and uh, you're getting low, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're you're more concentrating on uh, not hitting other gliders than you are uh, trying to be uh, fast around uh, the task. <laughs> right. Now I saw that you guys also had some smoke to deal with. Yeah, we had uh, we had some uh, smoke, and uh, I was amazed that a little bit of smoke that uh, died out the thermals immediately. Uh, mm-hmm. I had some experience with well, lots of smoke in uh, Brazil, right. and uh, there somehow it didn't matter. <laughs> this, there were thermals anyhow, uh, but uh, it was more critical in uh, in narrow mine, and uh, we had to cancel uh, even one day uh, because of the smoke. You know, unfortunately, I think that, that the whole smoke scenario, I think it's only going to get worse as we move on. I mean, I, I know here flying in the Columbia Valley, mm-hmm. basically the month of August was written off by the, the fires that were in this area. Oh, and uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's something we as glider pilots, I think, are going to be dealing more with in the future, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I was getting aware of that as well uh, when I was there because, you know, if, if uh, you have bad luck with the, the wind direction and then, you know, a week is nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, so you did very well in this contest. Fourth is, is great. But is there something you would do differently the next time? You mentioned Uvalde. I imagine you're going to mm-hmm. that. Is there any lessons learned or something you want to do differently? Yeah, absolutely. Don't don't do stupid stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My wife so, tells me that yeah. all the time, but it doesn't work, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, yes, I had some learning points, um, but also you have to uh, to be aware that the things that you did well mm-hmm. uh, that you keep on doing that. So right, so uh, build on the stuff you do really well and try and look at the things that you could do better, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah. So that. Yeah. The entire experience down at these worlds, they, they were well organized, I imagine. I mean, I, I've spoken to Beryl, uh, one of the organizers there, and yep. it sounds like she runs a tight ship. Uh, yes, she <laughs> she runs the ship more or less. <laughs> it's uh, no, it's amazing. It was amazingly organized. It's uh, they thought about uh, everything, hmm. so uh, there was no no problem there. There was some discussion about uh, uh, cancelling some days a little bit uh, uh, well ahead. Uh, so the day before, we're not used that to that as European pilots. We just, you know, wait until the last moment uh, to make the decision before we cancel a day. Right. But, uh, uh, um, well, yeah. Leadership's was... lonely at the top. Exactly. Yeah, it's our job. 
yeah. being a contest director, and I think uh, Mike did uh, pretty well. But you had you had fun. You don't regret anything. Uh, no. Of course, we had fun. We had lots of fun. Excellent. So you mentioned Uvalde. Are do you already are you already seated on the Dutch team? Do you know you've got a spot? I mean, finishing fourth, yeah. I imagine you do. Uh, yeah, that had nothing to do with this competition. We uh, in Holland we do that uh, normally at the end of the summer. So uh, by September we know uh, we can go. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, then you have to uh, to arrange your stuff, a glider, um, and also uh, some free time. Right. Uh, but everything is uh, arranged, so uh, I'm uh, ready to go. Refunction. Try to improve. Excellent. Excellent. Well, good luck uh, flying this coming summer, and uh, we will chat again, I'm sure, before Uvalde happens. And uh, if you get extra time off, come fly in the Columbia Valley. <laughs> oh, that's an invitation I uh, I love to take, yeah. Eddie. Okay. <laughs> I love flying at the different uh, areas. So. You won't regret you this have. place. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Jeroen, again, uh, good for you fourth place congratulations and uh Thank you, looking forward to chatting again at some point yeah looking forward as well and uh have fun skiing today i will <laughs> cheers okay take okay. care jeroen bye 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 dutch 15 meter competition pilot jeroen verkel spoke to me from heemstede the netherlands should have checked SkySight. I'm sure we've all heard from fellow pilots who've missed a great day because they didn't check the right weather app. SkySight has become the go-to weather application for glider pilots around the world. It's tailored specifically for glider pilots by crunching the last-minute weather data for up-to-date forecasts that can't be beat. If you're interested in trying out SkySight to maximize your cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. There are many of us who dream of aviation adventure, and then there are those who turn dreams into reality. Australian pilot John Riedel and co-pilot Rob Hanbury took a STEMI 12 motor glider on an 8,000-kilometer safari, and the main attraction was to fly to the mystical Morning Glory wave system over the Gulf of Carpentaria in northern Australia. This spectacular wave system forms out over the ocean for great distances, but that's also the catch. It's over the ocean. This aviation adventure started from his home base in Lake Keepit to Burktown on the Gulf of Carpentaria and back. It took a total of 19 days, 8,000 kilometers, and 60 hours in the cockpit. I've reached John Riedel at home in Sydney. Hello, John. Boy, this sounds like such an amazing adventure. Well, thank you. Thank you, Harry. Nice to talk to you. Yeah. So how did you turn this dream into reality? How did everything align to make this happen? Well, um, it actually started a long time ago. I was, um, back in 1986, I decided to learn to fly gliders. And at that time, I did, I think it was seven hours, 21 minutes, 19 flights. I managed to go solo twice, which was pretty good. Right. And then I did nothing for 35 years. And then I, uh, I had been reading about a book called The Flight of the Pelican, where a number of guys had got seaplanes and flown around. Australia in about the 1970s or 60s and I thought this is a really wonderful thing to do I'd love to do it myself 
and they produced a book called Australia, the Greatest Island, a, a picture book. Okay. Yeah. So I think I think they had two or three aircraft and. Uh, you know, Hasselblad aerial photography and Nikons and all of that sort of stuff. So uh, they did a marvellous job. And I was interested in doing the same thing. And in uh, about two years ago, I went and did uh, my first flights for a very long time and got interested. And then I saw a STEMI for sale, a STEMER, as the Germans would say, for sale in the, uh, in the advertising. And I bought it. So are point, you even licensed at this point? Oh, no, no, I didn't have anything. So, uh, so I then went through my A, B, and C certificate, got my GPC, my independent operator, and um, got myself to the point where, where I could fly. And I was flying things like PW5s and um, ASK21s. And, but I wasn't able to fly my own aircraft. And part of the problem in it was trying to find an instructor because there were only maybe three people in Australia qualified to teach me on it. Right. So that took a while, and but to cut a long story short, I got to the point where I was competent in it, but still not licensed as self-launch. You know what? Let's just stop just for a sec. Tell our listeners about the aircraft so they can understand the complexity and why it's not your typical motor glider. Yes, a lot of people have told me about the complexity and telling me how mad I was to start with a stemmer. A stemmer is a touring motor glider. It's got a folding propeller. So the nose cone moves forward about, uh, in your terms, four inches, 100 millimetres sort of thing, and then the propeller comes out under centrifugal force. And when you want to shut it down, it folds itself in. Again, uh, spring-loaded against the centrifugal force, you put a brake on it, shuts down, pull back the nose cone, and you've got a glider. And it's a glider with 23-metre wings. So, so it's a 50-to-1 glider. It's got an electric undercarriage. And it's got a limb-back engine, 2.4 litre. In my case, that's behind the pilots. And the limb-back operates through a clutch and a gearbox and a 2-metre-plus carbon fibre shaft to connect to the propeller up front. So it's um, side-by-side seating, which is very nice for this sort of thing because you can talk to the guy next to you and you, you share the experience evenly. Yeah. But... Um, it is a more challenging aircraft to fly, and it's technically, everyone tells me, the most complicated glider you can buy. So, But it's a fantastic look, aircraft. 50 to 1, self-launch. I mean, fantastic. You, can, you have to self-launch. And it's flapped. It's, it's got flapper on. So um, you have um, minus 10, minus 5, 0, uh, plus 5, plus 10, and landing flaps at 16. So, uh, as I said, electric undercarriage and conventional conventional air brakes. So, so you've uh, got this very amazing nice canopy. aircraft now. You've, you're working on your license, but you're dreaming about these massive flights you're going to do. Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to go to Morning Glory, and I couldn't make it the year before because every time I was getting – Somewhere with the glider, we would be shut down for COVID or we'd be shut down by rain or we'd be shut down by a flood. Uh, anyway, it took a long time to, cu to cut a long story short. And I finally got to the point where Rob Hanbury, who is uh, a very experienced STEMI pilot and has one of his own, actually identical to mine, and agreed to fly to Morning Glory with me. So uh, we went off and uh, I came back licensed, by the way. Ah, so you, you left unlicensed and you came back licensed. 
I did. So I'm now fully qualified to fly it around by myself. Although I prefer to fly it with others. Right. I, I know that feeling as well with a two-seater. But listen, let's talk about this epic adventure. I read on your blog, you talked about three phases, and the first phase was getting there. So let's set the geography for our listeners. You're in Lake Keep It, which I think is south west of Sydney, right? I uh, know it's to the to the northwest. Northwest, it's, okay. It's it's sort of uh, a couple hundred clicks below the Queensland border. Okay. So, so Queensland is an enormous state. I haven't actually worked out the the length of this trip, but I guess uh, we were flying. Uh, we were flying four, uh, five to six hundred kilometers a day, and it it took a couple of days to get there. So that takes us to Burketown, which is in the bottom of the Gulf of Carpentaria. So, so but, Australia has but the, two outbound, bits of- the outbound trip, you're basically flying five, six hours a day. Did you have pre-planned yeah. places to land, stay in a hotel? How did you do that? Yeah, we had pre-planned places. Uh, we had one hotel along the way and one of the destination. And the difficulty with planning hotels, as you would know, is the weather. Yeah. So we we flew out of uh, we flew out of Sydney. We flew the first leg was to Walgett, and and it's beautiful farmlands to Walgett. It's two hundred and forty six kilometres, and um, Walgett is an outback town. It's uh, it's a fairly uh, challenging town. There's a, a noble mining district next to it, and you know it's a, it's an interesting town to be in. Right. No one at, no one at the airfield when we landed, and. Um, and then we did manage to find a pump, and we were off then the next leg. And then we and, went on to... And sorry, and John, just to clarify, you left from Sydney on this epic adventure, or was it from Lake... No, we left from Keep It. We okay. left from Keep It. Okay. So I'm just looking at the log here as I speak to you. So 246K to Walgett, and then we did uh, 453K as the next leg to Charleville. Yeah, and then 399Ks, again the same day, to Longreach. So, you know, it was pretty much a 1,000 kilometres on day one. And that's all heading north? All heading north, and the land is getting drier. And it's interesting, as you fly over this territory, you classify it by, firstly, is it landable? And then, is it survivable? (laughs) Right. This is Australia, after all, with uh, many more poisonous things than uh, anywhere else in the world, I think, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, the thing that kills you there is the climate. Uh, if if you get the plane down, right, and in that, you know, you'd break the plane, but you'd probably survive the landing. But the next question then is, how long can you survive out there? So of course we had a satellite phone, a Garmin spot, and uh, right, that, you're that well prepared in case something went wrong. Yeah, we had two of them actually. So you need to take a hell of a lot of water, yeah. and that's probably a biggest limitation in there because there's not a lot of luggage room in these gliders. Sure, and every litre of water is a kilo, and that adds up too. Sure. So we were cruising uh, kind of 170 kilometres an hour, sort of, you know, 85, 90 knots uh, sort of thing, and generally being forced up higher and higher. And we started off cruise climbing and then got sick of it, and as as the day wore on, we could hop onto a thermal, and you get a a thermal doing better than 12 knots, which is as much as my gauge will read, <laughs> gets you up to 9,000 feet, and things were a lot more comfortable and cooler there because it's getting to 40 degrees on the ground centigrade. Right. 
Sure, and, and the further north you go, the warmer it's getting. Absolutely. And on this part of the flight, your goal, you're heading towards Burktown, which is the base to be able to fly the morning glory. Yeah, absolutely. So we're in Burktown, and we lucked out. We got into the one good hotel in town. Uh, there is a hotel. There is, sorry, there is a accommodation. There is a hotel, and there is one restaurant, which is also a pie shop. Other than that, not a lot. Well, it really is in the middle of nowhere. It is an absolute in the middle of nowhere. And um, now, just to, for our listeners to get a, an idea of geography again, if you look at the map of Australia. If you go to the north, there's this, it looks like a big shark bite, which is the Gulf of Carpentia, correct? Carpentaria. Carpentaria. Yep. So yep. at the bottom of that is where Burktown is, right? So that's where your base is. Bottom that's, left. Okay, bottom left. Okay. All right. Get your atlas. So the, the, <laughs> the southwestern corner. Okay. All right. So now put, put me into position. You guys are there, and you're looking at the weather. You're hoping to be able to fly the morning glory. Yeah, so um, so the drill is to look at the forecast, but basically the best forecast is when you have a beer at night in the pub, if there's condensation on the glass, it's a good indication of a morning glory. <laughs> and in, and so, in that part of the world, I would think there's condensation on the glass almost every day, right? Well, no, not necessarily, really? but on some days there really is. And so uh, the way the morning glory works is the the... Your peninsula is a gigantic isosceles triangle yeah. of land. Okay. And it's to the east of where we are in, in Burktown. And as I worked it out, there's 2 trillion tons, 1.9 trillion tons of air sitting on top of it on any one day. So it gets heated by the sun. We're just close to the equator here. And it rises. And so underneath it is a, is, is a partial vacuum. And in rushes the air from the sea on, on, the, on the east and from the gulf on the west. And it meets in the middle along a thing called the convergence line. And it, it smashes together like a zipper closing because being a triangle, it's coming in from both sides, mm -hmm. meeting in the middle, and it, it closes progressively. And then you get a shock wave. And some people say it's a standing wave. It's not. It's a traveling wave. It's, it's a wave that's billions of tons of air. And it goes out in both directions, one towards the sea and one towards the gulf. And what you're talking about is a rod of air that's probably two kilometers in diameter and a thousand kilometers long. So that's the shock wave. But you can't see it until you get condensation on it. So you can get morning glories that are invisible. Mm -hmm. But you can get them. The, the ones we want are the visible ones, obviously. And that's why and, you're there at that particular time of year, right? Because it's it works. That's when it works. It's yeah. basically the the end of September, early October. Mm -hmm. So put 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 me in the cockpit when you saw this for the first time. All right. Well, let me start with the morning. And so you get up before dawn, and you you about four thirty. You walk across about a mile and a half of scrubland trying to avoid falling into wombat holes and bushes and what have you because we shortcut to the airfield across scrubland. And then we get to the airfield and uh, key the, use the transmitted key on the, the aircraft lights, the airfield lights. Yeah. There's a stunning sight of the, um, 
uh, of the, the galaxy there, the Milky Way. I mean, you look up, there's, there's just an incandescent ribbon through the sky. You don't see this. In the cities, there's too much backscatter for flight. But there you get a tremendous view of the Milky Way. Anyway, uh, the light, you start to get a bit of a glow in the horizon. And at this point, we're getting the gliders ready. And generally, they're, co- they're totally covered in moisture. So there are a bunch of other gliding glider pilots there with their aircraft as well. And they're all motor gliders, I, I, I gather. They're all motor gliders, eight to ten. Anyway, so we take off and we, we really don't know at this point whether there is one or not. So uh, we headed out at uh, first legal light, which is 6.06 on that particular day. Um, some of them are wearing life jackets. We didn't. Um, but the advice up there is if you're going to ditch – and don't forget you're going 50 k's out to sea, uh, there are saltwater crocodiles, and these guys are 20 feet long, and they get you on the beach, so you don't want to land on the beach. The those shallow are those, water those are those massive crocodiles called the salties, right? They're the salties. You really don't ever, ever want to meet a salty, <laughs> and they yeah. can run faster than you, and they are uh, certainly faster than me. I'm not going to try that one. So if you're, gonna, to, if you're going to ditch, you ditch far away from the coast. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, no. In the shallow waters, you, you then have the sharks, which are some of them get to be, you know, pretty big. Uh, Twelve feet is not that unusual. And uh, so the idea is if you're going to ditch anywhere, just ditch out to sea and activate your transponder and say a couple of prayers. <laughs> but we didn't have to do any of that. So I was up at uh, – we climbed up to 8,000 feet to have a look. And uh, which is a bit higher than we normally go because the morning glory is usually about 800 feet or 500 feet off the deck. So we went out to a couple of islands out there, one of which has an airfield on it called Swears Island. And that has an interesting history of its, of, of its own. The, uh, the whole of Burktown relocated there in the 1800s. They had an outbreak of cerebral malaria. And apparently the program there was uh, horse racing in the morning funerals in the afternoon and debauchery at night. And the government got <laughs> sick of it and relocated them all to a town that no longer exists called Carnarvon, and not the one in West Australia, but one on Swears Island. And now there's a little resort where they've got some excellent fishing. Anyway, so we uh, flew out of there and we had, we had no luck. And so we then rehydrated, which up there means beer, and we then in the afternoon and lay around the pool and then tried again the following morning. And the following morning we were lucky. So it starts as a faint line across the horizon and you think, oh, a little bit of cloud. And then you realise it's a hell of a lot further away than you think. And then 20 minutes later you get to it and it's just enormous. And, I mean, it stretches across the horizon. Hmm. And, And you look at this thing and it's, this particular one looked a bit like a cumulus cloud. So it had a steep leading edge and a fairly flat top, and then it was clumpy. So we sort of felt our way there with the engine on and then folded the propeller and gingerly eased onto it. And now, bearing in mind, you're shutting your engine off 50 kilometres out to sea at 6 o'clock in the morning where there's no thermal activity. So it's, you know, but you're you, high. You, not that high. We were at about two and a half thousand feet. Okay. So, I mean, you might get to Swears Island, but uh, you certainly aren't going to get back to shore. 
but you felt there was some lift. You you were pretty. Confident. Oh yeah, there was yeah. some lift. We, we we waited for some lift. Okay, okay. Before okay. we shut so you down. Should, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. And so it only takes about a minute to shut down, and we just go to idle, shut, let it cool a little bit, shut it off, and then close the propeller, close the cone, and away we go. So uh, it didn't take long, and we were up to uh, 140 knots. Our V&E is 146. We didn't try it that day, but we did the next. Uh, so, so now you, you are doing what you, you've reached your goal. I mean, you guys are flying the morning glory, and you're skimming along that edge, right? We are skimming along the edge. And it's the, the shoreward edge, it's moving towards the shore. So we started at 2,500 feet, and we are picking up speed, picking up speed, and then down to 1,000. And the strongest lift is down low. Huh. Uh, and Rob knew that because he's done this before. Uh, some of the new guys, there were about eight aircraft there. Uh, and um, those other guys were staying pretty high. You could stay like two and a half, 3,000 feet and get lift, but you were doing 70 knots or 60 knots, which was all it would support. Now, John, did you, did, got... did you have to pinch yourself? I mean, this was a lifetime of getting there in a the sense that you started gliding again. You wanted to go to the morning glory. You're still not a licensed, officially licensed glider pilot, and here you are flying the morning glory. It, it, it must be a dream come true at that moment. Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of these life experiences. And the whole experience, including the flight home, which was spectacular as well, was just so overwhelming. And you get this, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm 80 this next year, and I'm a bit jaundiced about new things and <laughs> using superlatives. But all I can say is that it's just breathtaking and and you feel like a child. You're exploring new wonders every single day because mm -hmm. every day was different. It's not a morning glory. It's We had in the end 25 rides on four morning glories over four, four days, um, 25 back and forths. And everyone's quite different, mm. quite different. And... This particular morning glory, the first day, started off with a steep edge. The front of it was like 70 degrees angle from uh, from the horizontal, the front leading edge. And then as the day progressed, it became like a smooth slope. It, it evened out. So you could see the internal structure of the wind and moisture inside it was evening out, evening, evening out as the day wore on. You know, I... I read on your, and I took a note of this on your, one of your blogs when you were up there flying the morning glory, and I'm going to quote you. You said, I am a skier, and I thought, this is the perfect slope. Angels probably ski on stuff like this. That's so evocative. It just put me right there. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, the semis are 50 to 1 glider, and we got up on, on the second day, we had a, a bigger morning glory. And it was smoother, but it still has features on it. It's like a ski slope. It's got hills and hollows and peaks and little cliffs. And, and basically what you're doing is skimming over it. And at times we'd have the wingtip touching, touching the, the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I know that sensation. Again. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, pilots understand that. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, there are tendrils of cloud reach up. Occasionally you get these 
you know, like you get the dags hanging down from a, a from a, a cloud at the top of a thermal. You have the inverse here where they're reaching up, and as you go through them, the the, the glider shudders. And the other thing is, as you get to VE and you sit on VE, the whole thing sings with a resonant note. The whole glider is singing. It's just an amazing sensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time we <laughs> we were flying at VE, and I, I looked at the overland in this case. I looked at the altimeter, and uh, we're at eight hundred feet, and <laughs> I hadn't realised we're at eight hundred feet. And normally we'd be landing if we're at eight hundred feet. Uh, but there was just so much energy in it. We pulled up and we got to, I think, three and a half thousand feet on kinetic energy alone. <laughs> just straight pull up and uh, gently, of course. You have to be quite careful. If you saw some bit of cloud that looked unusual, it paid to back off because some of it was quite rough. And particularly at the ends of the cloud, the, the cloud gets absorbed by passing over. For example, we flew over Mornington Island, which is a big island with a, a large indigenous settlement on it. And as we flew over that, the middle of the cloud disappeared. Hmm. The cloud itself was there. Sorry, the wave itself was there. The lift was still there in the gap. But you didn't have a but, marker. But the marker wasn't there. The cloud disappeared. And what happens is it, it takes energy from the cloud. And it didn't reform when it went over the island. But... You know, during a typical set of runs, the cloud might move 100 kilometres. Right. And, and so then you have to think about getting home. And um, you're flying over some very, very unfriendly, unlandable, unsurvivable country to get home. So you really don't want a problem. But you still get home and then you have to have breakfast. <laughs> so it sounds like this whole expedition up to Burktown and flying the morning glory was extremely successful. The homeward trip bound, the, the third leg of your trip, how did that work out? Was that uh, straightforward? So I wanted to have a good look at Australia. Um, and, um, I mean, we did a little bit of exploring. We landed on Swears Island and had a bit of an explore. And then we took off basically heading east. Okay. But then we headed, uh, I think, 1,500 kilometres across to to go to an island called Lizard Island. But first we had to get to Cooktown, and that was kind of interesting because um, we <laughs> to get to Cooktown, you fly across all this flat, un- unlandable country, lots of fires on the way, wildfires. And then we come to the Great Dividing Range, which is a mountain range that runs down the entire east coast of Australia. And it's jagged peaks and deep ravines and... If you land there, really, it is not survivable either for plane or person. Anyway, we were heading into Cooktown to spend the night in Cooktown after a long trip. It was like a five-hour flight uh, across Australia. And we did that on uh, on one tank full, uh, except that as we got there, both tanks are showing empty. Now, we had never run the tanks down this far before, and the, the gauges are notoriously unreliable because... The tanks are very flat, they're in the wings, there's 45 litres a side. And if the plane's not dead level, and it's hard to level up wings that are 23 metres uh, from tip to tip, then you don't necessarily get it in. So we, uh, we were arguing at this point as to whether we should attempt to cross the dividing range. And we can see a couple of airfields on our side, which is 
uh, local cattle stations, which we don't really necessarily want to impose on the cattlemen. And then the right tank runs dry, so we're on the left tank, and we said, you know what, why don't we just turn the engine off? So we did, and we're now flying over rising ground, and there's cumulus coming in from the ocean quite fast. And so we just, we thermaled up to, um, I guess, what was it? About four and a half thousand feet, couldn't go any higher because we'd reached cloud. And uh, the land is coming up about 3,000 feet. And uh, the glide computer says it starts off at 65 to one, 50 to one. And at 40 to one, we saw a cloud street heading in the right direction. So we took that and landed to find we still had 12 meters in the left tank. But next time, we will fuel up a little earlier. Yeah, because 12 litres isn't a lot, but it's enough to get you safely to the next place if you needed to, right? Sure. But it's pretty nice to be able to do 50 to one glide as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Nice to have that in your back pocket for sure. Anyway, so we then uh, had the night in Cooktown, and then we took off the following day to, to go to Lizard Island, and it's just spectacular. Uh, we, we followed Cook's route out the heads or over the heads in our case, up the coast and out to sea and um, um, had a look at the island. We didn't land. They wanted 230 bucks landing fee and refused to give us lunch because it's a luxury resort. <laughs> it's also a national park. So we just flew over it, had a good look and quite a few boats there. A lovely resort, spectacular water, spectacular coral reefs. You know, then we I, headed down there. I read in one of your blogs as well that you described this whole journey that you have lived in Australia your entire life, but you saw things you didn't know existed. What oh, so much. It's just, it's, it's an endless sensory overload. And so let me try and paint a picture of it. So it starts off with the, the island and the, the coral reefs, and then you start to see beautifully cultivated areas. And some of them are just spectacular. They've obviously been done by GPS and computer. Every tree is in the right place. Every paddock of field is in the right place. And then as you come down the coast, you find marshlands. And some of them are, uh, I like the north, are sort of very brown and with green rivers in them. But others are very green with ocean poking through. Hmm. And... And as you come down, little villages and then luxury homes on the, homes on the odd hillside, um, the barrier reef comes right, not the barrier reef, the barrier mountain, the great dividing range, comes pretty close to the coast in places. And then you come down, there's a lot of mining and the wharves that reach out into the ocean for kilometres because the big ships can't get into shore. The water's too shallow. So you're you're heading south along the coast right now. Are you... We're heading Near. south along the coast and basically farmland and then unlandable forest and more farmland and then more spectacular farmland and then unbelievable farmland of more colours than I can. I'm looking at the picture here now. Um, and you're, you're heading towards ago. the direction of Brisbane now, right? Yeah, we're heading in the direction of Brisbane. So, But we're still a long, long way from Brisbane. So there's a lot of riverine inlets and outlets and then we come to some very large industrial towns. There's a town called Gladstone, and there's, I think we had 19 ships sitting off the coast. Uh, we're flying, by the way, in 38 knots of crosswinds, which was uh, 
interesting because we're flying at a fair, fair angle to our, our track, huh. as you can imagine. Uh, and uh, But just, I don't know how to describe it anymore, salt flats, uh, tidal areas, marshy areas, forests, mountains. It's, it's an entire gamut of experience. But for you as well, it's a combination of you're, you're almost licensed, you know, you're experiencing flight the way you've dreamed about for a long time, but you're also seeing your country in a way that you've never seen it before. So, you know, you mentioned earlier sensory overload, right, on many levels. Yeah, and most Australians have not seen it like this. In fact, virtually all have not seen it like this. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we had uh, very strong winds, and we took three days going down the coast. We had weather close right in, and uh, the difficulty then began to be airspace because there's some military areas there, and there's a lot of civilian traffic in the resort areas, which are right. all along the coast. And so the, uh, the Oz Runways are, is suggesting we go inland and... Uh, the trouble with going inland is there's a lot of weather coming in and it's closing down and you're going up valleys and you may not come out. You can go in between some clouds and, you know, a canyon between clouds and mountains and find you're blocked in and then you can't find your way out. And sure, of course, we're the corner. Yeah. Yeah. I've got one picture in the blog which shows <clears throat> a window with absolutely nothing out there except cloud and rain. Uh, but we, we broke through that into 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 lovely air and passed a few fires and then just went over continuing beautiful country and, and cut across country at that stage and headed back into keep it and which is where you started this entire adventure which is where we started so it was about eight thousand kilometers of flying uh they, we passed through kingaroy and there, there was a sky that's a, a glider pilot's dream it was just <laughs> cumulus everywhere so, and they were having the national championships at the time. We went in, had a cup of tea, right. passed a few mines and some spectacular lakes, and finally landed to keep it where there were kangaroos everywhere on the field, uh, which is uh, we had to get someone, we had the radio in and get someone to chase them off so we could land. And then it was kangaroo mating season, so normally they run away from you, but they're standing all over the place refusing to move. So we had to walk around the mall. Well, ho hopefully they didn't find the glider attractive, so. No, no, or, or us. <laughs> or so, you. Uh, no, they didn't. So that was good. And then uh, the following day, I did my first solo in the STEMI and I got my qualification. But, but essentially, the, the entire flight, this entire incredible journey, you were with a co-pilot uh, who was an instructor, so you, were, you knew you were ready to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, congr congratulations yeah. on so many levels. You know, you've you're now a licensed. You're turning eighty. You're now a licensed pilot. You've got a fantastic aircraft, and you've got an amazing adventure behind you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And I would like to encourage other people to do the same thing because a lot of people told me it was impossible to do all of the things I was doing. In fact, impossible to do any of them. But uh, there you go. Well, you're in, you're inspiring, and and what a trip! What a hell of a trip! And. Uh, Thank you so much for, for telling us about it. And I'll get you to email me some pictures and I'll put them up on uh, the Facebook page so that our listeners can go and have a look and, and see what you were talking about. And wow, what a trip. Thank you, Harry. Very kind of you to give me a call. A pleasure speaking with you, John. We'll talk again at some point. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
John Riedel spoke to me from Sydney, Australia. I'll post some of John's photos of this trip on the Thermals Facebook page. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. A few weeks ago, many of you probably saw posts about the UltraVision glider. It's in the design phase and has a unique canopy and seating position of the pilot, hence the name UltraVision. I will post the story and some photos to the Thermals Facebook group if you want to have a look before listening to the interview. Gonzalo Garcia Atanse is the glider pilot behind this unique design. Oh, and he's also an aeronautical engineer, PhD, and lecturer in engineering, aircraft design, and stability at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. I've reached Gonzalo in Guadalajara, Spain. Gonzalo, I love the unique look. Please describe the concept glider to the audience. Well, it looks like a glider that the cockpit, actually you are not sitting in a reclined position, but quite in an upright position. So the windscreen is all in front of you. It's not above you. The canopy is not above you, like in a normal glider, it's in front of you. And you can see it down, um, quite down, and you can see also on top, on the left, on the right. So you have an, an, an unobstructed view all around you. In front, you can you can see actually what you are flying over. It, it, so it's almost like flying castle. in a glass bubble, right? Yes, it's like a, a glass bubble that covers you, all your frontal area, while you are sitting in an upright position, like if you were sitting in an office chair or you were sitting in a in a seat of a truck or in a seat of a car, mm-hmm, but right. not an, a normal car. So great vision and, and a comfortable seating position for the pilot. Yes, the, the, I, I reckon the position could be also adapted to the to the preference of the individual pilot because you could recline the seat further or you could put it more upright. So mm. you could have like um, a, a comfortable position or let's say an active position to see quite well where you are flying over. Now, what inspired you to come up with the design? I mean, I really like it. It's sort of out-of-the-box thinking, but what what gave you the idea? Well, when I was taking my first uh, uh, le- my first lesson or my yes my my first flight in a in a glider in Forest of Bowland in Lancashire mm-hmm. in the UK and I flew over the local hill 
And, and I knew very well that local hill because I have flown many radio control gliders there. Okay. In slope, sorry, in radio control. So I knew very well the place I was flying over. And I could see less when I was in the glider myself than when I was working on the hills. Interesting. So uh, I found it like a little bit frustrating because I wanted to see more, not less. And I actually saw less. You cannot see more than 10 degrees below horizon. So, and I thought that that was detrimental in the flying experience. I thought there is an opportunity here. And I also, because I'm an aeronautical engineer and I like gliders and so on, I thought that increasing the frontal area of the glider or the fuselage would not make so much impact in the gliding performance mm -hmm. because the winds are becoming very good. You know, it's interesting so you say that. I, I just showed a photograph of, of the concept of, of your glider to my wife, and she's not a pilot, but her first comment was, it, it doesn't look very aerodynamic. But actually, I calculated the performance because the main... The main contributor to drag in a glider is the wing. Mm -hmm. It's not the fuselage. So having a very good wing, the the fuselage is secondary. Obviously, it has a big impact, but not so much as people might think. Right, everything's a trade-off. Well, yes, we can talk about numbers. For example, the glide ratio with 18 meters and flaps the glide ratio is 46 for the ultravision, or it could be even better. So 46 is a conservative calculation, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, it's not it's not an optimistic one. An optimistic one is 50. Wow. 50 is the optimistic calculation. 46 is the one that I think is easily achievable. And... Um, 48 could also be quite easy. Uh, I submitted to technical sharing. That is the the publication of OSTIP. Right. And uh, it is under peer review. So you've got a Finger whole bunch cut. of uh, smart aerodynamicists and uh, professors of of aeronautical engineering looking at your paper and trying to decide if it if it really if it flies or not, right? Well, hopefully only two. No. Okay. Uh, so review, the peer review process is made with two, two reviewers normally. So hopefully only two, and hopefully they, they are happy with my calculations. Mm -hmm. What's the next step? What are you going to do? Uh, the, the one that I would like most is that everybody thinks that my glider is amazing and manufacturers run into manufacture a similar glider to mine <laughs> and so on. So it's, it's a reality in three years' time. Uh, 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 a well-known manufacturer makes, is selling a glider very similar to the Ultravision, like the Ultravision. That, that is plan A. Plan B would be to push to push uh, the project myself through the university that I'm working in, that is the University of Central Lancashire, mm -hmm. 
And it, it could be through, for example, something as simple as making a, a flight simulator with the cockpit and uh, like projectors, windscreen and so on. So people could have a go to try to see um, if the experience is worth doing it. Mm -hmm. Or for example, the next level could be to get a second-hand glider, chop off the cockpit of this second-hand glider, and make a cockpit with the sitting position of my design. Right. Right, and then you have a, a prototype for, that would be the the demonstrator, the concept of demonstrator. Sure, you could get that something would, with AS like thirty-three wings, a pair of thirty-three wings, and put it on a fuselage of your design, and away you go. Right. Yes, but uh, I seen uh, most well uh, using most of the fuselage already manufactured. So just modifying the cockpit because uh, the pictures that you have seen that have become viral, uh, they are like a complete new fuselage. Right, right, right. With a new vertical fin, and this demonstrator would be would use like an existing fuselage. You sound like a man yes. who's in love with aviation. You love things that fly. Yes, I actually decided to be an aeronautical engineer at the age of 11. <laughs> well, Gonzalo, it, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I, I, I love the concept of the, the, the glider, and I sure hope it goes somewhere. And uh, let's stay in touch, and uh, we'll follow up at some point at, at the next stage. Okay, okay. Thank you very much for inviting me and to have this opportunity to talk to your audience about, about the Ultravision Glider. It has been very nice. I will put up some pictures on the, the Facebook page so people who haven't seen it can go and have a look. So thanks again, and uh, we will talk in the future. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye, Nice Gonzalo. to meet you. Cheers. Bye. Gonzalo Garcia Atanse spoke to me from Guadalajara, Spain. If you want to know more, just Google Ultravision Glider. That's it for episode number 44 of The Thermal. I'll be back again in the new year with a show about books. I'll speak to Simon Lemmerer about his fabulous new coffee table book called The Art of Gliding. Also on the literary beat, American pilot Chip Bearden on his evocative autobiography called Goodbye Papa Golf. Please remember to subscribe to The Thermal and leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is a small but dedicated global audience. It's always nice to hear from listeners who often enjoy the show while driving to the airfield. Thanks to my producer, overseer, and wife, Yet Belgraver, for getting the show to air. Finally, if you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. We'll see you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.